Hey fellow album divers, Trevor here. If you grew up in the 80s or 90s like I did, you probably remember going to great lengths to create the perfect mixtape or CD to play in your Walkman or CD player. Well, fittingly, before we dive into one of my co-hosts' favorite albums from the 90s, I wanted to take a moment to let former musician and comedian Mike Dryberg tell you about his podcast designed around exactly that premise. Check it out. If you had to make a mixtape for a friend of 10 tracks without using the same artist twice, what would you pick? That's what I ask my guest every week on my podcast. We talk about each song, and if you like the sound of what you hear, you can listen to the mixtape in full on Apple Music or Spotify by clicking the link in the show notes. So if you're the kind of person who'd like a new mixtape every Monday, you should subscribe to Mixtapes with Mike. You can find Mixtapes with Mike wherever you get your podcasts. Now on to the show. Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Shane. And I'm Trevor. On this podcast, we discuss two albums per month. One of us chooses a new album from this calendar year, and the other chooses an album that's been around a while. All right, and it's your pick this time, Shane, and we're going back to the 90s with this one. What's your pick this time? Today we're going to be discussing one of my favorite albums from my teenage years. This one's titled Shapeshifter, and it's by the band Marcy Playground. Okay, so 99, we were talking about this album and this year ahead of us recording this. You just said teenage, but I think you were not quite there, right? You were 12 when this album came out? Well, I was born in 87, but I I don't think I discovered this album until teenage years, junior high, early high school. I mean, I knew of the band Marcy Playground from their hit single, Sex and Candy, released on their self-titled album in 1996. But other than that song, I didn't really know them. It wasn't until later that I started to dive into their full discography and listen to everything. How old do you think you were when you picked up this album? Gosh, I'd say at least 14, 15, maybe 16. Where does this album fit for you in terms of being one of those important ones and what made you pick this one? I mean, it's definitely a, a memorable one from my teenage years. But I wouldn't really say that it was influential by by any means. There there were a few songs that really stuck with me that hit me during certain times in my life that I revisited and still have a special place in my heart today. But overall, I just thought it was a really fun album. It's fun music. All the music that Marcy Playground has put out has been really fun music that you can listen to in different contexts. This album, Shapeshifter, stands out to me as as their best album. I know that's up for debate and 
all of their albums have good songs on them. Their most popular, obviously, the self-titled album that had the song Sex and Candy that became so popular and mainstream. But I really feel that this album, cover to cover, uh, first track to last, is, is the most dynamic and versatile that really shows their whole array of talent. I'm like most people. When you picked this album for us to review, I knew Sex and Candy the best. Obviously, that was a huge hit in that time. 96 is when the self-titled one came out. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so I remember listening to that, seeing that music video on MTV with a spider crawling around the guy's head. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I'm wrong. 97. 97 for that one, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, two years before this one. But for some reason, I didn't I didn't rush out and buy the album. I guess in 97, I would have been maybe 14. I'm not sure what I would have been listening to instead. It does seem like something I probably would have liked at the time, but for whatever reason, I didn't own it. I didn't own that album until I was probably 25. I had somebody say, you don't know the, the whole album? There's some really good songs on that. And I was saying, no, I just know Sex and Candy. Mm-hmm. And so I I own that one on CD now because somebody cool. gave it to me. Um, and there are a lot of really good songs on it. But then I didn't venture back and listen to Shapeshifter or the MP3 until until you said, let's do Shapeshifter for the album. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I have Shapeshifter and MP3 on CD. I mean, I know I have those two. I'm pretty sure those are the only two that I have. But I might have the self-titled Marcy Playground album as well. Or maybe maybe the the single uh, for Sex and Candy. Before we get into the history on Marcy Playground and this album, I was trying to think back. I, I was texting you and figuring out, okay, how old were you? How old were, was I when this album came out? I would have been, I guess I was 15, just a little too young to be able to drive and go out on my own and find music. But unless I had like a friend's big sibling that said, hey, check out this indie band or something like that. I was kind of a slave to whatever MTV was throwing on the screen. Mm -hmm. And so looking back at 99, I was trying to think, what was I buying? And looking at the totality of what was released in 99, there was a lot of really good music that I ended up buying later that I didn't realize was 99 until I was looking at this list. But first, I'm going to list a few things I did buy. I think you and I have both mentioned that we are Counting Crows fans. Yeah, totally. This Desert Life was released in 99, which in retrospect I think might be my favorite of their albums. I bought Incubus Make Yourself. I think oh, you mentioned man. that you were a big Incubus Great album. fan. Yeah. The Foo Fighters' third album came out that year. There's Nothing Left to Lose with like Learn to Fly on okay. it. Okay, yeah. Third Eye Blind's follow-up to their self-titled album came out in 99 that album was called blue i bought that i bought silver chair neon ballroom stereophonics i was a big fan of stereophonics they put out an album called performance and cocktails man you must have had a good allowance i this, this is like all i spent money on <laughs> wow or were you working i guess you're a little older than me you were you were yeah what was i doing you were I in was high also, school in 99 right Freshman, maybe? Were you a freshman in 99? I think I was a sophomore in 99. I was joking with you that I was kind of at the stay out of my life, mom and dad, but first, can Mm -hmm. you drive me to the mall stage of my life? Yeah. Yeah. Our Lady Peace released an album called Happiness 
is not a fish that you can catch. Yeah, yeah. Which I got I, that is one. my. Do you have one? Okay, because mm-hmm. that that's yeah. kind of like I would say that's like the shapeshifter for Marcy Playground. I think that's their best sure. one. Yeah. All their hits were on their prior one. And then I've mentioned in several podcasts that. Pedro the Lion is a band that had a big influence on me, and I guess I did. That's the one kind of indie band that I was listening to. Someone must have given me an album of theirs, I think maybe the year before, but they released an album called The Only Reason I Feel Secure in 99. So that, that's what I bought. I think that's that was my complete list as I was looking through. That's a good lineup. Not bad, not bad. Yeah. And then just looking at the pop culture of the year, these are some of the other albums that came out that were big. Biggest one, Britney Spears' Baby One More Time came out in 99. So, I remember that music I mean, video. You were talking about MTV earlier. Yeah, and I was looking up too that TRL started in 98. So 99 is when it was really picking up speed. And I think, I mean, Britney Spears was huge influence on that. Yeah, that, that was a time where the music videos that were being shown on MTV were possibly the most racy content that you could find on regular cable and I remember as a a 12 year old I had friends whose parents blocked MTV because they didn't want their kids to watch it and it it probably had some to do with shows like Beavis and Butthead and and other shows of the like that that were a little controversial the music videos were a big part of it too and a teenage girl dancing provocatively in really skimpy clothing in the hallways at school was a kind of edgy and and uh, a song by Marcy Playground singing about sex and candy fit the same bill and so as a, a 12 year old watching MTV countdown and seeing music videos like that it, it was um, I guess something that was a big part of that teenage development identity process of exploring and thinking about different things like that kind of moving on from being a kid to a teenager to thinking about adulthood and that whole transitional period. Yeah, I think 99 was a big time with that and I mean there's there's probably not a bigger music video and song than than Britney Spears Baby One More Time no coming out that year. Um and yeah. to have it played over and over and over again on TRL I think was was a big was obviously a really big deal. You also had the Backstreet Boys with the album Millennium that year, and that song I Want It That Way came out yeah. in 99. Yep. Another big song from that year was Lou Bega with Mambo Number no. 5. Yeah, Mambo Number no. 5. <laughs> His album A Little Bit of Mambo. Yeah. Red Hot Chili Peppers' Californication came out in 99. Moby's Play came out in 99. That was a pretty big album. Blink-182's Enema of the State came out in 99. Oh. Good album. TLC's Fan Mail with the song No Scrubs. That was also all over MTV that year. Oh, yeah. You had Creed's Human Clay come out that year. That was, like it or not, a big album that year. Another really interesting album released that year was Santana's Supernatural. Yeah, yeah. Man, a lot of, a lot of good music. Eminem released the Slim Shady LP that year. So those were some of the ones that stood out to me just from a pop culture reference. And then looking back at albums that came out in 99 that I, if I was actually cool, I wish I would have bought that I bought later. I was texting mm-hmm. you that 
Built to Spills, Keep It Like a Secret came out in 99, which if you haven't gotten a chance to check that one out, definitely listen to that. I think most of the lists I was looking at of best albums released in 99, critically, including Built to Spill at the top or close to it. The White Stripes' first album came out in 99, their self-titled. I mentioned Sigaros, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce the name of this album, even though it's one of my favorites. I've never known how to say it. It's Agatis Birjun. They're an Icelandic band. Definitely oh, yeah. check them out. They're super good. Okay. You had texted me if I'd ever heard of Sebado. Their first and only major label album release was in 99 as well, just called The Sebado. And then um, Jimmy E. World released Clarity in 99, which I think is another great album. Part of what would become that emo sort of starting to become a bit more into the mainstream, but mm-hmm. Jimmy E. World didn't get popular until their next album, Bleed American, which I think came out maybe two years after that. A lot of different genres from boy bands and female pop singers to pop rock bands, punk rock, hip hop with Eminem. So that's just a little walk down memory lane, some of the albums that came out in 99. I thought that might be kind of fun to do. But let's transition into Marcy Playground and this album. Tell us a little bit about the history of the band and and the lead up to Shapeshifter. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you did a recap of all those albums that were released in 99 too, because that was a nice walk down memory lane. And, And if we were to look up top 20 or even 50 albums released in 1999, Shapeshifter probably wouldn't show up on any of those lists. Sure. But... That's okay because they they weren't necessarily a mainstream pop culture radio band except for that really big hit that they had on their first album. The origin of their name, it comes from Marcy Open Grade School in Minneapolis, which is the alternative school that lead singer John Wozniak attended when he was younger. The original members of the band were John Wozniak, lead vocals, songwriter, guitarist, 1996 until present. Jared Kotler on the drums and backup vocals. He was with the band in 96 and 97, so only appeared on their first self-titled album, Marcy Playground. Dylan Keefe on the bass. He's been with the band since 1996. Dan Reiser on the drums and backup vocals. He joined the band in 1997 and was with them until 2000. So he was a member during the release of the album that we're reviewing today, Shapeshifter. Gonzalo Martinez de la Cotera on the drums and backup vocals from 2000 to 2009. And then Shalomi Lavi on the drums from 2009 until present day. So they've had a handful of members over the years come and go. They signed to Capitol Records back in 1995. And they're best known for their hit single Sex and Candy that we've mentioned a few times already released on their debut self-titled album in 1997. That song spent 15 weeks at number one on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart, which will become an important talking point leading up to this album Shapeshifter because it put a lot of pressure on the band to produce something that would be as popular as their first album. In fact, a lot of people had started to prematurely label them as uh, the next one-hit wonder because of the fame that they got solely based on that one song that became such a mainstream hit. But before we get to talking about Shapeshifter, let's mention some of the musical influences of Marcy Playground, which include one of your favorite, Trevor, David Bowie, 
Very good. Who your barking dog in the background is named gonna, after. I was just going to say, can you hear <laughs> Bowie in the background? So, other than David Bowie, we got some other iconic singer-songwriters. Paul Simon, Neil Young, Van Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd, Nirvana, Wham!, and the Beatles. Marcy Playground Sound can be described as modern folk music with some undertones of children's songs, various elements of psychedelic rock, a little bit of grunge here and there, and some more clear rock and roll at times. After Shapeshifter, they released two other studio albums, one in 2004 titled MP3, and another one in 2009 titled Leaving Wonderland in a Fit of Rage. They also had some compilation albums, some best hits uh, that were released, but those were their four uh, primary studio albums. So now on to Shapeshifter. It was released November 2nd, 1999. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people put pressure on Marcy Playground leading up to this album to follow up their first release that had that big hit song. Upon doing some research, I found an interview from 1999 that was on the website hiponline.com uh, and the interviewer was asking John Wozniak about how he could break his sophomore jinx and he simply said by by putting out a record and the interviewer went on to explain that a lot of people had had been expecting bigger and better things and whether or not that was making it difficult for him to write songs and put out a second album and he stated that he, he understood people's expectations and quite frankly he, he thinks that they delivered on this album for sure um, he said I would like to go back and re-record the first record I think it's subpar compared to what we do now he even mentioned in this interview that that he doesn't even really like the song Sex and Candy despite how popular it became and that he doesn't think it's fair for, for people to label them as a potential one hit wonder when they've only released one album up to the, this point prior to uh, the release of Shapeshifter in 1999. And he almost sounded kind of offended by this whole idea of somebody being a one-hit wonder and that you can't really know that until you give them a chance to put out music for a number of years and, and then uh, reflect on their success and and determine that down the line. So I thought that was interesting to, to read about that in the moment uh, of 1999, kind of putting you back a little bit. It's a really good uh, interview. Yeah, you can tell he's defensive about being labeled a one-hit wonder, and for good reason. I, I think what he said is very fair at the time. You can't really label somebody a one-hit wonder if they haven't really had a shot to follow up that hit. That said, he also said, maybe we will be a one-hit wonder, maybe we won't be. I think at this point, it's probably fair to say that under conventional definition, they, they would be labeled a one-hit wonder band. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. There, there's several bands that I would put in the category of some of my favorites that had a hit that was on the radio. And it's always fun for me to lend somebody the record and say, I know you know that song. Listen to this whole thing. It's not even, it's not even the top five of my favorite songs on this album or by this band. I think that by conventional standards, they did end up being a one-hit wonder though no one should have been able to label them that at the time. And so I think that his defensiveness was totally justified. We've talked about that a lot in the past, where some of our favorite bands and albums have songs that became mainstream, that reached the radio, and became hits that are not even in our top 
five favorite songs of that album. And I think it's an issue of the audience and the fact that to make it into pop culture, you have to appeal to the masses. It has to become mainstream. And there's a particular sound that's transformed over the years that people attach to for the most part. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's really good music or true, pure in its form, but that it's something that's catchy, that people like to sing along to, that that's something that appeals to a lot of people in, in a lot of different settings and environments. That's what makes it known to so many people where it becomes a household name. And a song like Sex and Candy did that for obvious reasons. But if you look at that song musically, it's fairly simple. It's the, the lyrics that made that a one-hit wonder. It's not necessarily that it's this incredible, musically special song. It's a pretty basic, simple song, but it's it's fun and it's catchy and and uh, a lot of people enjoy it. And it's a good song. There's nothing yeah. uh, to take away from that. But to define a band like Marcy Playground by one song would be r- ridiculous. And I think people who really appreciate good music who could call themselves critics or, or scholars or any other level above your average listener would browse through Marcy Playground's discography and come up with a different conclusion than them being a, a one-hit wonder. But again, like you said, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That means that they had one song that was so popular that everybody knew, but those same people didn't really go explore their other music. In this interview, the interviewer said, I, I know you touched on this earlier, but what specific aspects do you like about the new record compared to the first record? And Wozniak's response to that was, I like the fact that the record is a lot more rock and it's got more of a live energy to it. We recorded it using all vintage audio equipment, so there's no automation or protocol. All classical vintage equipment with big knobs and big tubes and big UV meters. We did it the old way by cutting a lot of tape. It takes a little bit longer, but if you're cutting a record with SSL and protocols to edit it, and then he got cut off and the interviewer said, now with digital edit, bands are putting out records faster. And what was next? I said, yeah, it's like, bada bing, bada boom, we've got a record. For us, we did it all the old fashioned way. It was all about mic placement, cutting tape, and good live performance right off the floor. So the record was all done that way. And for me, it was a lot more fun to make. I think sonically, it's it's representative. That was really cool to read that when you sent me that article. I wonder if they did their first one that way, or if it was if that one was done more with computers. I gather the latter because he, he's making it sound like he appreciates this more because of the way they did it. Yeah. As far as the origin of the, the album, uh, where Shapeshifter comes from, Wozniak was asked about this in the interview as well, and he said, I grew up in a house where my mother would have these friends over, but these friends were not your typical Saturday evening friends. They were spiritual people and medicine men, African shaman from Ghana, Tibetan monks, very interesting people. My mother took me to meet Rolling Thunder, who was the Cherokee medicine man, because he was in town and a friend of the family's. When I met him, he started talking about this shapeshifter and the fact that he could see a shapeshifter around me. Whether or not it's true, I do not know. He he was not, you know, it, it was a very, very strange experience for me. I think he was trying to teach me respect for things other than my immediate surroundings. I was a 13-year-old kid. 
you know, kind of a, a life lesson about how there's more important things in the world than your report card and your friends at school. It's a big world, you know. So this album is recount of many stories and experiences from his, his childhood and teenage years and some leading into adulthood and reflecting on some of those times in his life. Some serious songs, but also some fun, lighthearted, uh, goofy, almost children's type songs, you could say. Yeah, I definitely hear that in this. Well, did you find any other fun facts about the band and doing your research? or The only other thing I thought was worth mentioning, I don't know if you read the, there was a little bit of controversy about the record cover. I did see that. It was art that was originally for the band... The Butthole Surfers. Right, yeah, the Butthole Surfers. They saw what was their album art come out. Was it on a pre-release of Shapeshifter? I think it was something like that. The artist had created a whole bunch of renderings of art to be picked, and Marcy Playground didn't realize that that was one that had already been selected by the butthole surfers and they were given it and they they said yeah let's go with go with it and then one of the members of the butthole surfers was like what's going on here and assumed that Wozniak had stolen it intentionally and then they they talked it out and came to an agreement yeah but it was it was the the manager the producers that had given them that art Marcy Playground didn't know that that somebody else had the rights to it and so they talked to them, and the butthole surfers allowed them a portion of it. Is that how you understood it? I believe that, so, that They got yeah. to use a portion of it, so it must have been a bigger picture right. of artwork. Right. Um, yeah. Other than what was actually allowed to be used. So that's why I was wondering where, where they saw that, if the album hadn't been released yet, that they would have this conversation and then come to the conclusion that they could use a part of it, but not the entire art. Yeah, I'm not sure how they got wind of them using it, if it was before or after, or how the Butthole Surfers had saw that. It sounds like they worked it out, which they is a good thing. Out. Yeah. You don't want to be on the wrong side of the Butthole Surfers. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally. Um, right. <laughs> you don't want to be the, on the wrong end of anything that starts with Butthole. Um, I'm glad that we got the context of that interview that you sent because it does put the, I I think the record artwork is fitting now because it's got kind of aliens and they look like shaman and and, um, it reminds me a little bit of what influenced the title. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was cool. The only other thing I wanted to ask you is given that this album came out or you were digesting it at at a formative time of your life do you have any particular memories of a time listening to this when i think about albums i had during this time i I feel like i can almost place myself in certain places do you have any of those memories with this album i can remember listening to it with uh a walkman cd player oh yeah with with some cheap with some cheap uh over the ear headphones with the with the uh the foam coverings on them you know that mm-hmm. that don't actually surround your ears but just kind of rest on your ears it was a navy blue walkman i remember walking around holding that listening to the music probably terrible quality but didn't even know it back then hopefully you had the good anti-skip technology on your cd player that was all the rage at the time i don't know if i did i remember if you if you shook the cd player too fast or if 
if you bumped it, it would it would jump to the next song a lot of times. Uh, you should have had the 15 second anti skip. You weren't one of the cool kids, obviously. <laughs> <sighs> All right, man. Well, yeah, let's get into the track by track. This will be fun. All right. We start out with probably their most well-known song uh, from this album. Their first single, track one, is titled "It's Saturday." So this is a fun song to start off the album. It was originally titled Teenage Hypochondriac, and the lyrics obviously explain why. It's it's about a, a, a kid who's in bed. He thinks he's sick, but you come to find out that he's, he's actually faking it, and his, his mom is a big-time hypochondriac. She's always worried about him being sick and always giving him these herbal remedies like ginseng and fresh squeezed juice, some wheatgrass and hot chicken soup uh, to, to cure his, his ailments. And so he, he basically is saying that he thinks he should stay in bed today, but then he realizes it's Saturday and he doesn't, he doesn't have to, to fake being sick. So he's going to go out and play instead. Yeah, it's funny. I wrote in my notes on this song, it, it, I said it sounds Dr. Susie, um, just because it's kind of got that childhood and, and rhyme um, quality about it. And then in reading a little bit of the details and in that interview, I wasn't too far off. It's, I should have said it's Shel, Shel Silversteiny, which is another children's book writer. And it is loosely based off an actual poem by Shel Silverstein called Sick. And the whole thing is about this little girl, Peggy Ann McKay, who's talking about how she's coming down with all these things. It, it just comes, she comes back with, this hurts, that hurts, I'm feeling all these things. And then it ends, what's that you say? You say today is Saturday, goodbye, I'm going out to play. I mean, it's kind of exactly what he's talking about here. Yeah, that was, that was a fun discovery to see that the poem was most likely an inspiration to this song. Like you said, the girl was complaining about every ailment under the sun. Tonsils are as big as rocks. I've counted 16 chicken pox. Oh, wait, that's 17. My leg is cut. My eyes are blue. I got the flu. A cough, a sneeze. My hip hurts. My belly button's caving in. My back is wrenched. My nose is cold. My toes are numb. And on and on and on. I wonder why they changed it from teenage hypochondriac to... It's Saturday. I mean, I wonder if there was already a storyline about his mom being a little bit of a hypochondriac because she was big into the herbal medicine and Eastern philosophy from from what uh, we've read, it sounds. And um, possibly Wozniak read that poem and decided uh, to take a spin off of it and uh, make it about staying home from school and, and then realizing it's a Saturday or how that shift happened. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I um, had read more recently, too, that it was, used to be called Teenage Hypochondriac. Could be a fitting title as well, but maybe he just decided to keep it simple. I have to say, before I knew of this poem and 
we dug into the research and, and figured out that this was the actual or most likely uh, storyline. I took it completely uh, differently, especially when I saw the music video, because there's a character who's rolling around in bed uh, with a bunch of different women, and it seems like maybe the aftermath of a party, things are kind of wild and crazy, and there's this this line in the song where it says, I, I should have listened when you said beware of horny girls with New Jersey hair last Saturday. So I thought he was he was maybe implying that he, he caught some kind of disease or something last Saturday when they were out partying and that he's going to stay in bed all day today because it's Saturday and last Saturday didn't go so well. So let's just forget about Saturday and uh, just stay in bed. That way I can't, I can't get sick. I can't, you know, get worse or run into something else. But then, you know, we find out it's a totally different storyline but that just goes to show without background and context or history a lot of different people can listen to a song and read into the lyrics different ways yeah definitely you're right that that line stands out from a conversation between a kid and a mom and a shell silverstein poem that's for sure in addition to the article that you had sent me i think probably right out of the gate this is a good time to thank there's a member of the Marcy Playground Facebook group that we've been discussing this album with a little bit in its lead up to us doing this deep dive with. And one member, particularly Dennis Woods, I want to say a quick thank you to him and really all the members of the Marcy Playground Facebook group that have helped us out in some of our research. But he had presented that as well, that it was based on that poem Sick by Shel Silverstein. And I wanted to say thank you because we definitely were trying to figure this one out until we got a little help from the Facebook group. Yeah, yeah, that that guy knew his stuff. And a lot of the members of that group were coming forward with a bunch of really cool stuff for us. Yeah, he sent us another article where Wozniak just sort of summarizes a little bit what each of these songs are about that was super helpful in us looking this up in the midst of our busy lives. So again, thank you, Dennis Woods, and thank you, that Marcy Playground Facebook group, for helping us out. That's been a fun part of this this journey. There's there's a super fan out there for every band, even if it's a band that, that we consider ourselves super fans of. There's there's somebody out there who knows more than we do or different stuff than we do. Yeah, or and, something that we just don't know, yeah. Right. Facebook, other forms of social media. We've engaged with some people on Twitter and Instagram. It's been really fun to seek out those communities of, of fans, as we were saying earlier, Marcy Playground is not uh, a household name as an iconic band to everybody, but there is a community of people that uh, really follows them and, and uh, are incredible fans, and it's nice that, that we have an outlet uh, to reach out to them and ask them questions and, and allow them to educate us in this process of diving into the music uh, before we release it um, to the public so that it's not only our research, but uh, a collaboration of, of a lot of people that are sort of doing the same thing that, that we are behind the scenes, but not necessarily releasing it on a podcast. So definitely huge, huge thanks uh, to all those, those guys uh, from that page and, and other people from other pages that have helped us, that have helped uh, contribute to um, other podcasts and interacted with us afterward too that have allowed us to see some connections that maybe we didn't know the first time around um, that's that's made for a, a better experience overall definitely that's what that's what's been one of the funnest things about this i thought the yodeling was an interesting contribution on this yeah. song yeah i couldn't think of any other bands that would that were pop and rock bands of that time or really any era 
implementing the yodeling. Although we had mentioned earlier that I had bought that Our Lady Peace album from 99 and mm-hmm. They they do I don't know about yodeling but he he's got he's got something kind of like that that he do, he does he does a lot, of, a lot of a lot of yeah a lot of a lot of yeahs and echoes just and, but that kind of flipping into falsetto back and forth uh-huh. not right, unintelligible right, right. not actual lyrics yeah. just sounds that he would make kind of kind of yodely like I thought. think there's anybody i would i would really compare to these guys maybe that's maybe that's why they stand out as a band that i that i really like because they, they are different they have a pretty unique sound um they throw in a lot of different elements of uh music from singing to to speaking parts to different sounds and just kind of some odd quirky things uh that really define them as a band that kind of set them apart you mentioned some of their influences and one of the ones that you listed off was Nirvana who of course has influenced a lot of bands right but I was thinking about them on this song especially with that the quiet loud that was a big a big element of grunge music in that era and you know a lot of stuff is after that has been labeled as post grunge and perhaps this could be thrown into the mix even though there's definitely some unique qualities about it but i i hear nirvana mm-hmm. on that quiet loud on this song and several others on this album yeah yeah i can hear that too did you catch the timothy leary reference with the cryogenics i did i read about that and now i'm forgetting who he was so he was a pretty well-known psychologist and an advocate of psychedelic uh, drugs during that era and he once had stated that that he had signed up to have his head removed and frozen uh, after he died um, for possible resurrection in the future. I thought that was kind of interesting that he threw in that there. Think I'll join in a Things are so bad, this, this disease that he has, there's no remedy. I might as well, you know, just give up and maybe they can revive me in the future. They can come, cure come me up with come back a to cure life. later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because he can't deal with it. One of the things I wish I would have thrown out to the group, maybe we'll do after this, the lyrics at 2.30 where it's kind of like echoey and unintelligible. Could you make out any of those words? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I tried. I think you asked me about that a couple weeks ago, and I pulled it up on YouTube and slowed it down to a quarter or an eighth speed, I think. So it was really slow, drawn-out words, but I still couldn't hear what he was saying. I think I made out one word. We'll have to phone a friend. We'll phone a friend on that one. Awesome. Well, that's all I had on this song. Anything else on your end? No, I think that sums it up. We talked about uh, his his mom being pretty sensitive about all those health issues. In that summary that Dennis uh, sent us, uh, Wozniak said, my, my mom has always been hypersensitive about my health. She's the type that knows all about medicinal herbs and homeopathic remedies. This piece is about abusing her good-natured paranoia in order to skip (laughs) out on some days of school, only to realize that it's Saturday. So I guess that answers my question from before. He he did probably have this idea, and then maybe it coincides with with that poem that we discussed as well. That's true. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't completely from reading the poem. His mom really was... Right was like that and he was preying on her on her good nature yeah i don't, I don't know which came first uh, i mean i assume that poem is 
rather old. Poem was written in 1984. Well, should we go on to track two? Yeah, this is one of my favorites. Track two is called America. Lucy came to the timberline, climbed up on terrain here, looked out over Washington. Swore she could see the apple trees And she said Ooh, oh, I never want to leave Ooh, this place Ooh, yes, I always want So that was a really pretty song. I, I like when artists include proper names and places it somehow just puts you there even if you haven't been to washington or manhattan obviously it i connected personally to it because it's talking about the northwest in uh, and rainier and some places that remind me of where i grew up but even if you didn't those personal play those places and then those specific names peter lucy i like when artists can include things like that makes me wonder who these people are why you mention these places connects you to the song a little bit better yeah, that makes me think now. I wonder if they are real people uh, in his life, if, if we should have dug into those names a little bit or if they were just names that were pulled out of a hat that fit well with the music. Yeah, I know he mentioned one of the things that influenced this song is them touring nonstop. He said, we toured nonstop for two years after our debut album was released. Most of it was in and around North America. In that short time, I developed an appreciation for this country that is beyond my capacity for plain language. So I've decided to sing about it instead. So I, I imagine him touring with people that were in the band or accessories to the band. And, and Peter and Lucy are not names of any band members. So maybe, you know, some roadies or somebody at the merch table or, you know, things like that that might have been present with them during their tour. Just as a just as a possibility. But you're right. I don't know either. I mean, the, the lyrics are kind of literal, but also met metaphorical in a sense. We're talking about two different characters, Lucy in verse one, Peter in, in uh, the second verse. But th they're both at the top of uh, a magnificent place, the, the mountains, Mount Rainier in the first and the Statue of Liberty in the second, looking out, uh, having this uh, overlooking perspective on, on things and just sort of reflecting. And in the line, ooh, I, I never want to leave this place. Yes, I always want to be right here. You know, you know it's, it's literal for those characters because they're they're in a magnificent place but it's also in a way metaphorical because we all kind of have this maybe place in our head that we might go or something that's that's uh you know important or special to us that, that maybe we we want to just kind of go there it's almost like mesmerizing you know it doesn't have to be the the summit of a mountain or the the top of the statue of liberty looking out but uh maybe it's a lake in your in your backyard or you know, like where you grew up, your childhood, or, or, or a playhouse, or um, a basketball court, or a soccer field, or just something that's, that's meaningful to you, that, that puts you in a good spot. You know, when you're, when you're there, you, you don't really want to leave. Like, physically, you don't want to leave, and then mentally, too, you know, you enjoy um, that state you're in at the time, you know, because of that. So I think that that's really cool, uh, metaphorically. I, I always connected with that song. Yeah, it must be a really unique perspective to see America to that extent and in that short of a time frame like a band that like you described is 
riding this wave of being, I mean, this, this big hit and they're all over MTV and the radio and everybody is going to come out to your concert. So you're in high demand, you're traveling all over the country. I can't think of any other job besides maybe a sports star or, or just somebody on a professional sports team that's traveling that frequently and seeing that much of the country flight that time span yeah flight attendant yeah maybe that, that, exactly <laughs> you're right but it's on a short Assuming list they have so layovers yeah right that, not yeah, many people. yeah but but yeah not a ton so i would imagine that would give you a cool appreciation and, and a unique look that not everybody would have yeah yeah definitely there's kind of a, a deeper thought that i have when i when i hear this song or think about it too and, and i'm not sure if there was any intent here but um it's something that always comes to my mind you know just the way he he, he says uh lucy came to the timberline climbed up onto rainier and then in the second verse peter came to the city climbed up into liberty peter came to the city climbed up into liberty looked out over manhattan you know, the, the Statue of Liberty, that's a very iconic statue in America that has a symbolic meaning. Freedom and, and some American ideologies and, and uh, a dream of you know, bettering your, yourself. But um, there's also some potentially negative connotations that are associated with that that some people would say, too, about how, I mean, as much as America is a place that is a, a, a hodgepodge of people from all over the world and, and supposed to be open to different cultures. There have been times over the years where some people have questioned that you know, maybe the borders aren't as open as we would like to think they are. There's certain people that kind of want to keep this place and say that it's theirs and that it's not open to everybody. You know, they don't totally accept people who come here. And so when I hear those lines, Lucy came to the Timberline, Peter came to the city. I mean, despite the fact that they're rather um, American names, I, I think of maybe people coming here to America and climbing to the top of a mountain or going to the Statue of Liberty or any other iconic place and just being kind of mesmerized and, and thinking, wow, I, I finally made it. I'm here. I'm in America, this this place that I've just thought about and read about and seen in books all my life. And now I'm finally here and I don't want to leave because this place is so beautiful and it's amazing. And the song is rather rosy and it's positive. But then, you know, we, we have you know, some baggage and uh, some things that aren't so great too uh, about America. So my mind just starts going to different places and thinking about so many things that, that make this such a great place, but then a lot of things that, you know, still need fix that aren't necessarily the best. Yeah. I, I think in, in that sense, it's kind of cool that he just left the title America. He doesn't, he, it's up left up for your interpretation on, on maybe how you would view it as the listener. Certainly you're right. Despite them being real American sounding names, it sounds like Peter and Lucy are enjoying at least that moment as they're looking out over the mountain or the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, I, th I think about all the times that I've set out to summit a mountain and then finally reach the top. It's it's really special to look out, to feel accomplished, and, and uh, you don't want to leave. I can also relate to that, that second verse. Uh, the, the summer of 2001, we took a Windstar bus uh, out to D.C. and New York for a class trip, a junior high trip. Um, every every summer, seventh and eighth grade class, a select group of kids get to go out. And I remember climbing the stairs to the top of the Statue of Liberty, and you get to stand on this balcony. I can't, I can't remember if it was up in the torch or the lower part, like maybe in the crown. But there's a part where you can you can go. You're outside, 
uh, and there's a there's a rail obviously that that protects you. But I got a photo with the the World Trade Centers in the background, the Twin mm. Towers. That must have been July or August of 2001, and then of course 9/11 no happened uh, oh, wow. in September. Yeah, so I got a, I got a photo of me in eighth grade with the Twin Towers behind me, and then and then all that happened the next year or the next month. It sounds like. Or yeah, yeah. I mean, like that that school year, that that yeah. following school year in the fall. Yeah, right away. Yeah, that happened when I was a freshman in high school. So yeah, that that too. When when I uh, hear this song and those those lyrics, I think about that too. And and um, I guess that wraps into what I was saying before about how there are so many things that are that are great about America. We can be proud of and and say that you know we enjoy being here and that we don't want to leave this place. But but then uh, there's a lot of people that don't like the symbols that that we stand for and you know some of the ideologies of America are not uh, perceived well by everybody around the rest of the world to think about being at the Statue of Liberty and then a month later a month or two later when 9-11 happens you know clearly that was people who who don't like this place so it just gets me thinking yeah you mentioned that you've climbed a bunch of mountains I know that you've done a lot more outdoorsy things than I have but driving to work Every day when I was living in Seattle, I was looking right at Rainier, and I always wanted to. It's like the one big mountain I always wanted to climb. I should still do it. I should go back and do it because it was always staring right at me, and it's so pretty. Yeah, I've I've never been to Washington, but that's an area that I really want to check out. Is your family still in Seattle area? Yep. Yeah, yeah. they're still okay. there. Yeah, in a little suburb close to that. That's what I thought. Yeah, I'll fly out sometime once once we're past this COVID crap yeah we'll go explore a little bit that'd be fun let's we jump into track three yeah let's do it track three is titled bye bye My first impression of this song when I read the lyrics, it sounds kind of suicidal or about death. And I think that he talks about that as well. He's quoted as saying, this piece is about my death. When it comes, as far as I'm concerned, it will be a solitary and beautiful moment. But it sounded a little bit like suicide in some of the lyrics. What mm-hmm. did you think? I don't know. I guess I didn't really pick up on that. I mean, the, the death part, but not, not the suicide yeah, it starts out by saying red velvet love seat from olden times. There's nobody on it but me. I guess he's yeah, sort of uh, isolated, definitely. But I, I didn't I didn't get the sense that that there was any type of loneliness. He says every everyone's crying, they're caught up in games. Me, I'm as happy as I've ever been. Then he goes on and says uh, every mistake I make comes back to haunt me. Still, I'm as happy as I've ever been. I guess the part that throws me a little bit the the lyrics, the the chorus, the refrain where he says. So bye-bye, my, my big blue marble, bye-bye, my spatial spectral, bye-bye, all bodhisattva, which we, we learned through our research is a, a spiritual ceremony where you promise to be the last soul to enter the afterlife. I don't know what all those three things are, actually. I just got the sense that everybody's caught up in games, everybody's, like, doing bad things, and he's out here by himself, but he's happy, and so bye-bye to all these things, like he's giving up stuff that would that would like pull him down or make him like those other people. So I, I thought it, I thought it was a like a positive song. Maybe I totally misunderstood what he was saying. 
No, I think you could be right. I, I may have just make, made some inference with him saying bye-bye, and then at the beginning when it said red velvet love seat, there's nobody on it but me. I was thinking of like, yeah, love seat's usually something you share with somebody else. So I was thinking, oh, okay, if he's mm. if he's making the point to say there's nobody here but me, maybe that was him feeling sad and saying, all right, I'm done, bye. But I I may have just that just may have been the impression that I got when I was hearing it because you're right, nothing nothing really spells it out about suicide. Definitely death, but it could be it could just be him talking about his natural death. And from the quote I read, he said, when it comes, as far as I'm concerned, it will be solitary and beautiful doesn't really sound like a giving up scenario it sounds like just a natural end and you pronounce that word much better than me say it again Shane bodhisattva is my bodhisattva that harkens back to me maybe some of the company that his folks had coming over when he was a kid that you mentioned in the history yeah yeah possibly healers and shaman Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah in the the interview that I was referring to earlier he was he was asked about this song because the interviewer said that it was his favorite song on the track. He said he really That's liked right. the vibe. Asked if he if he had originally written it for an acoustic guitar. And uh, Wozniak said, actually, most of my songs I write on acoustic guitar. And that this song is about death. Uh, and he asked him if he knows what the bodhisattva is. And, and the guy says no. And he said, it's a spiritual ceremony where you, where you promised me the last soul to enter the afterlife, as I mentioned earlier. It was... One of those songs where I pull out my absolute fear of death and try to make it more positive. I'm really afraid of death. I figured I would write this song to sort of embrace that. Which um, That's right. That sort of clashes with what we saw that you read exactly. from the, the yeah. other post about him saying that his death would be uh, solitary and a beautiful moment. So maybe that was later on in his uh, development or maturity that he had overcome that fear and found some sort of peace with the idea of death instead of being scared fearful of it when he wrote this song a very good point because they're both quotes by him and one of them sounds like it's some death is something he's afraid of and the other one sounds like it's more of a as he said solitary beautiful moment sometimes writing something gives you a little power over it maybe after putting this on paper he actually his fears were dulled a little bit yeah and i just get the sense if he's saying bye to all these things that that he's not focused on them or thinking about them anymore and this spiritual ceremony would basically be saying you know that he's not going to be the last soul to enter the afterlife bye bye to that whole concept for now yeah yeah it could be so then what's the spatial spectral that part i didn't know i didn't know because he says bye to that also yeah so he he also says bye bye my big blue marble did you read into that or look that up? Well, the big blue marble to me was definitely just planet Earth. Ah, okay. That's oftentimes when people people talk about Earth as the big blue marble. Well, that blows my theory because I was thinking that he was swearing off all these negative thoughts or bad things associated with death. But if he's saying bye-bye Earth, that makes it sound like he is leaving. Yeah, that's what, that's what I assumed big blue marble was. So if the bodhisattva is a spiritual ceremony where you promised to be the last soul to enter the afterlife and you're saying bye to that like you're basically saying well there there goes that idea i'm not going to be the the last one to enter the afterlife because i'm i'm leaving it now i'm also saying bye bye to planet earth the big blue marble 
and the spatial spectra. Yeah, I guess maybe it is you know, about him leaving. I also thought maybe the red velvet was like what you might line a coffin with. Yeah, that's possible. That made me think more of a, a castle, like a big throne that a king would sit in or even an old church where a lot of times they'll have those velvet uh, covered big wooden chairs. Yeah, that could be. But he keeps saying in the song how he's as happy as he's ever been. And then we're saying that he's talking about leaving the world. Maybe he's just come to to peace with things. Yeah, that's what it sounded like to me. He just, he was at peace with where, where he is. Of course, that's different than what I said earlier about suicide. But it right. sounds like maybe he's just at peace with his demise at this point. Yeah, perhaps. So this was the interviewer's favorite song. Do you have a favorite on this album? America's up there. I already mentioned that was one of my favorites. And then probably the last song that we'll get to in a little bit. I like the next one a lot. I don't know if it's my very favorite, but it, it may be up there. And I like it musically is probably one of my top two or three on this album. And that song is called All the Lights Went Out. We could go blow. So All the Lights Went Out, despite its edgy sound, is actually a love song. He says, when I met my wife Kristen, I wrote her a love song. It's one of my extremely few love songs, he says. Yeah, I like how it starts out the line, she came in from stormy weather and asked her friend to be there with her when she slid down Cupid's bow. Oh, looking fine that day. I had to look that up to, to see what that meant. Cupid's bow is a term used to describe the double curve of a human upper lip and is said to resemble the bow of Cupid. Oh, interesting. The, I didn't read that. The, the Roman god of love. Did you think that that was describing a wedding where he says asked her friend to be there with her? It sounded, I almost thought maybe that was like her, her maid of honor. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I took, I took it as stormy weather, meaning there was some type of turmoil and that she needed a friend to, to be by her side. Like, can I talk to you about you know, whatever's going on right now? But I don't know. certainly could be. Do you know if they're still married? I don't know. I get the sense through this whole song that it was a fantasy of sorts that was maybe slowly coming together. But there's a line that says, I had a dream that we were lovers. I had a joke and she would smile when I'd say we could blow a fuse in heaven. And then it goes on to say where there's that big buildup. Well, today, and then the guitars are going real hard. And then it breaks and says all the lights went out. Well, today. by saying in heaven so he was dreaming about being with her making her smile telling her how they could blow the fuse out and then today all the lights went out I originally I didn't I didn't know if that was a, a positive thing I thought he was saying like they were fantasizing and dreaming about all this stuff but then the lights went out like like it like it died and uh 
then there's that line that says that I knew that we were doomed, doomed to love each other. So at first I read that as that, that we were doomed, trying to love each other was going to lead to us being doomed, that it wasn't going to work. But maybe that means like we're, we're cursed by love, we're doomed, we, we're destined to fall in love. But doom is typically a, a negative, uh, you know. That's true. I, I took it to mean like you said, destined, and yeah, maybe. A, just a different way of saying a positive thing. But you're right, doomed isn't typically said that way. So I'm not sure why you chose to do it that way. I mentioned this is one of my favorites musically, and I was getting vibes reminiscent of Smashing Pumpkins on this song when they get to the yeah chorus there before we did the beach boys pet sounds album i used to describe the smashing pumpkins sound as a wall of sound guitars and i didn't realize that that was a phil specter term until we did the pet sounds album but nonetheless there's that sound of like a wall of guitars on the chorus that reminds me of a lot of what smashing pumpkins were doing at that time and not a lot of other bands were so i mentioned their drawing on some Nirvana influence on the first song and now I'm hearing another real popular band in the 90s that would have come before them and exist coexisted during the time that they were popular uh, in Smashing Pumpkins so I'm, I'm it's putting me in that time of the 90s yeah I can hear those connections when I looked it up it looks like he's now married to someone named Amanda Thurlow oh okay so it looks like him and Kristen were not actually doomed to love each other after all. <laughs> this also mentions he lives in Ontario, Canada. I wanted to slip this in here at some point, and I don't didn't know when a better time would to do it would be. But being reminded that he lives in Canada, I think I had mentioned to you, tying back to our analysis of Dreamboat Annie by the band Heart, at one point he actually owned the studio that was mushroom records oh yeah you mentioned that i had forgotten yeah he no longer does and it's changed hands and it wasn't called mushroom records by the time he landed it but nonetheless that same studio that dreamboat annie was recorded and many other albums for a while he was running that studio in canada awesome do you want to move on to the next song yeah let's take a listen to track number five secret squirrel This might be the purest rock song uh, on the album. Wozniak was quoted as saying, this was a fun rock song to make. Somebody needs to give me a job doing voiceover work for Walt Disney. <laughs> the voice of Dr. Doom in the middle section of the song was my first dramatic role, and I'm very proud of it. I think he's referring to that part right around 150 in the song when you, you hear the wind blowing, picking up a little bit, and then he comes through with his deep voice, a little bit of singing, some speaking, then there's that creepy laugh. So I see came secret squirrels a shame you will have to die. 
That was such a departure from the sound of his voice that I thought, okay, this must be somebody else at this point. So when I read that, I thought that was pretty funny that that was actually him doing it. For lack of a more articulate explanation, I mean, they just they throw they throw some weird elements into their into their songs. So I guess that's why some people have described them as uh, throwing in children's music or or uh, modern folky elements into some of their rock. It's kind of cool. It's just it's refreshing. It's something new. It sort of sort of catches you off guard, but it makes the experience of listening to the album a lot more fun. Yeah, and I think if they were being categorized at some point as being a post-grunge style band. This sets it apart from the origins of grunge music, which was hyper-serious and yeah. negative and angsty, and this is certainly very funny and and playful, and they've got a little bit of humor mixed in yeah, that I don't well think would have, would have fit yeah. at that time. And this one is a kid's cartoon, right? Is, I think he mentioned Secret Squirrel was an actual Saturday morning cartoon. Cartoon character created by Hanna-Barbera and also the name of his segment in the Adam Ant Secret Squirrel Show, which debuted in 1965. Wow, no wonder we don't know about it. Yeah, some of those cartoons were still on and clearly he would have grown up after that. So, <laughs> so it would have been a little bit older for him too. It says the show's half hours included three individual cartoon segments. Secret Squirrel, Squiddly Diddly, and Winsome Witch. <laughs> I think he should have made a song called Squiddly Diddly. I That's, completely That agree. sounds more fun than Secret Squirrel. <laughs> I like how he does the tune in next week and see part at the end sounds like a narrator of one of those. I mean, you grew up probably watching some of those old style cartoons and you always have that narrator come in that sounds like kind of announcer voice like what will happen yeah. next to our Right, right. Yeah. Tune in next week and see. Definitely a fun song. So we go from a fun, lighthearted song named after a 1965 cartoon <laughs> to a song about heroin. Track six is titled Wave Motion Gun. Backstage, behind the curtain, there's an, an armchair with a secret engine in you. You climb in and Get naked watching star blazers Wish you had their amenities To fend off your enemies In one big blast from your wave motion gun So of this song, Wozniak said, Star Blazers was a Japanese animated series from the 70s that featured a spaceship called the Argo. And on the front of the Argo, there was a huge gun that was powered by the ship's wave motion engine. He said that kept the Argo safe when the Gamulin fleet was attacking. And then he goes on to say, opiates 
offer a similar effect for junkies. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting metaphor, uh, you know, uh, how drugs give people that, that safety net that, uh, you know, they're invincible or whatever was uh, painting them before or that they were scared about that might be attacking them is just sort of not even a thought anymore because the drugs take over. Yeah, you mentioned that we were going from a cartoony song to a song that has drug references, but even this one comes from a animated series, so another cartoon reference, even though this one has maybe some drug connotations with it as well. Mm-hmm, yeah. I really like the guitar in this. I almost feel like it's got a, a wavy sound to it. Don't you think? Mm -hmm. Did you catch that? Makes me think of being on the beach with the, the way the guitar is just ebbing and flowing, almost like a wave. Uh, in an interview, um, Wozniak was talking about this song. Somebody had said, this is a really popular song. What, you know, what, what do you think of it or what does it mean to you? And, and he says, yeah, that, that's a song that a lot of people seem to really dig. It's one of those impression songs in the end. It's telling the story about me trying to convince my friend not to do heroin anymore. And that became a theme in my life because I went to college in Olympia, Washington in the early 90s. It was sort of a port area in the Pacific Northwest where all the heroin trade was coming through. And everybody was on it at the time in the early 90s. And all my friends were sort of disappearing and I didn't know where they were going. I found out they were all doing heroin and they were doing it together, which is really a weird thing, but I never did it. It was it was not something I was ever interested in. In fact, drugs are something that never really interested me, except for some experimentation. But I just started watching friends die and disappear and drop out of school and stuff and turning up in houses in San Francisco and shit like that. And my closest friend, I tried to convince to stop doing it. And uh, that's, that's kind of what that song's about. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know you had yeah, a personal connection intense. with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sounds like all and... his friends just slowly started drifting off into this crowd of, of, of uh, you know, kids getting into heroin. And I didn't realize he had a t some ties to the Pacific Northwest himself. We talked about that in America with somebody looking over Rainier, and that was hearkening back to my neck of the woods, but I didn't realize he had some ties to that. Yeah. What, what college is in Olympia? Do you know? Yeah, so Evergreen State College is the main one in Olympia, and they're unique because... It lets students have the option of designing their own study towards a degree. They can kind of make up their own degree instead of selecting a predetermined one. The capital of the state, of course. Oh, right. Yeah. Olympia. This is the first song where we hear him really scream as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was really intrigued by the last verse. He says, downstairs behind the oven, there's a dark hole where the gas comes in. You know you should climb in. It'll get you there much faster. What do you think of that? I do remember that standing out. In rereading it out loud to you, I, I almost think in the context of what you read about him losing friends, it almost sounds like he's sarcastically saying like, you know, if you're going to kill yourself with drugs, you could just climb in where the gas comes out of the oven and just 
get it over with quicker. You know, it, it sounds like he's almost a little bit fed up with losing people slowly to this drug. And he's basically just saying, if you're going to do this, just much, just rip the bandaid off fast in sort of a sarcastic way. Yeah, I think you're spot on there because heroin is slowly burning a hole through their insides. And, you know, you could just make it quick if that's what you're trying to do to yourself. Yeah, he's just fed up to the point where, I mean, sometimes, you know, obviously you want the best for your friends and your family, but sometimes you you try so hard that you get to the point where, you know, you basically say, fine, whatever, you know, go go do it. Jump off a cliff if that's what you want to do, if you're going to be stupid. Exactly. Pointing out the ridiculousness of going down the route, you know, saying this is just the same as this. Yeah. Might as well just do that. Your buddy's taking his motorcycle out all the time and talking about how he's driving fast and being reckless doesn't wear a helmet and you keep telling him over and over and over you know you need to wear a helmet you're you're gonna get hurt and eventually just like fine why don't you just go go hit go hit 150 on the highway on the windy roads or something just you know, knock yourself out have fun yeah exactly yeah yeah and then he goes right from that into the the part i was referencing before where he's really screaming you know in the one one big blast from one big shot from um, so it sounds like he's kind of like angry at that point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You you had mentioned that this could be classified as stoner music, and and I can hear that thinking back to junior high, high school days, the the typical people that would be classified as stoners kind of have this go about life, go through the day like I don't really care mentality, but it's almost like they want people to know that they don't care. So there's this conundrum where, you know, people who care about how you perceive them, but they want you to think that you think they don't really care much. Yeah, even even the slackers that their whole thing is, I don't care. It's like you have to go to great efforts to show that you don't don't care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 kind of like this song. It just it feels like you know, like it's a sensitive subject. Obviously, he does care about his friends who are slowly fading away doing heroin, and that he doesn't want to be a part of that. But he's feeling like he's kind of detached. But but th- there's also like this intentional. You know, I'm gonna downplay this and and uh, talk about it and sing about it like it's like it's not as big of a deal as it is. And uh, maybe that's where it's kind of appealing to that. A rebellious grunge stoner punk uh, kind of crowd or sound you know it kind of the first half of the song is more like I don't care do whatever you want and then it seems like by the end he's frustrated and that's when he starts screaming the prior verse he says he's kind of tying it to the star blazers thing um, he says so you reach down to that secret panel and there's a whole raft of little buttons. It sounds like yeah. you're on a starship or something. Yeah. He says, you pick one and hope it takes you to Mars, which sounds kind of like somebody who has a secret stash of drugs or something. Yeah. And they're going to yeah, exactly. pick which pill they want to swallow and take you to yeah. Mars or get and you they, high. They, they probably don't even know know the effects of them. You know, they're, they're looking and it's like, well... Let's push the orange button and see what happens, or let's let's push let's push red and and green at the same time, and I wonder where that'll take me. Maybe yeah. maybe heroin is is the the drug that was used for this song, and he made a reference to the Pacific Northwest being a port uh, for it. That uh, a lot of it was coming through there. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Maybe maybe there there was a, a big issue in the '90s uh, 
with that with kids there but yeah well it certainly permeated a lot of the big bands i mean i guess you don't have to look any further than cobain when you talk about it yeah and uh so i think i think that's and, and i mean there's there's countless other ones too that come to mind Mother Love Bone, the lead singer of Mother Love Bone, I believe, also died of heroin. and That was a band before Pearl Jam. A lot of the members of Pearl Jam formed out of the death of that lead singer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I never, you know, I was too, I was a little too young for, to know what was going on during that time. But in looking back, I could see how that, there could be some connections. And, yeah, I didn't know he had connections to the Pacific Northwest himself. Yeah, definitely a more serious song on a rather playful, lighthearted album overall as a whole. All right, well, let's move on to track seven. And we are at the halfway point of the album, so let's flip the record over and listen to Rebel Sodville. Put a jack for higher on the cold wheel of fire, cries dog dagger. With a ripple hot in the wing iron pot in the court of rebel sawdust. Bring wine for the queen and red courage as time beats away. She smiles as they drift past her humor in hopes they all might stay one more day. So after listening to this whole album several times, I decided this was my favorite song when all was said and done. There's certain times I liked other ones more maybe, but as we're getting into doing the review itself, this one is my favorite. And I think it's just because it's got an interesting story attached to it and it's just kind of unique and stands out to me as a whole. Wozniak is quoted as saying, this is a direct account of a dream I had when I was 15. And in that interview that you sent me today, I'd read this is the oldest song he had ever written in since. He says, I woke up in the middle of the night in a bleary haze and wrote down my dream. The next morning when my head was clearer, I read what I had scrawled. It was so unusual that I knew I had to make it into a song. And so that's how this song was born out of a dream he had when he was 15. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty cool. It goes to show how, how good of a, a songwriter he is for him to be able to come up with it that quickly on the spot. There's there's another song later that we'll talk about that came to him when he, when he was at, at uh, another band uh, member's mother's farmhouse. But since, since the age of 15, he had the ability to have a thought. I mean, something like a dream that's not super clear and then to be able to sit down quickly before you forget it and write a song about it on the spot. I think that's that's really impressive. Yeah, and back to one of the things that I liked about in that second song, America, having some of those personal nouns. He's got personal names Jolly Roger, Dolly Dagger, and Sully Steven that all sound kind of like medieval characters of some kind. Yeah, they do. It's a hay and a king for sale. Cries Jolly Roger The jester dance the Joker strut in the court of Rebel Sotville 
Musically, it sounded like an interesting mix of hard rock on the chorus and then almost like a Western sound to me in some of the guitar work in the verses. What did you think? Yeah, I wouldn't have described it as that, but but uh, hearing you call it a Western vibe, I, yeah, I do I do kind of get that, like um, somebody walking down this old dirt road between a couple saloons and they're just sort of checking out the city, scoping things out. It's got that, yeah, that, that intensity um, to it. But I, I thought it was a little grungy too. I mean, I guess piggybacking off of the last song, it sort of has that stoner, slacker feel to it. Yeah, for some reason I just pictured like a tumbleweed rolling through when he's singing the, the lyrics to the verses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, walking from saloon to saloon or something like that. There's that line about the, the jester's dance, the joker strut. Yeah, which puts it at a different time. Like I said, more medieval, but for some reason, musically, right. I was yeah. I was feeling a Western time frame. So, I don't know. I think th- that's all of those reasons, talking about knights and wine and joker, and I think that all of those things together and, and coupled with the sound took me on a fun ride with this one, and it just stood out to me. I just like, ah, I've never heard a song quite like this before, and then reading about it being from a dream he had when he was 15, I think I was just intrigued by both the lyrics and the sound and ultimately all things together, which is what's fun about doing a deep album dive. Knowing all of these things, hearing it, this one ended up being my favorite. It just it was just the most interesting, I think, to me. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a nice song. I think it it almost feels like it could be the the ballad. Even though there are some rock elements to it, this has kind of a slow a ballad feel to it, the way he's singing and, and the story. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think definitely the story part makes it seem like that. You do, I'm not real clear on what's going on, and I think that could possibly be because it's a 15-year-old's dream, and maybe I'm not supposed to. Yeah, I didn't read into the story too much to try to figure that Me out. Me neither. I figured, yeah, I, know, I, like, I did try. It's a dream. I, I don't think it's supposed to be uh, like anything serious. I don't think he, he, he said, well, I, I woke up from this dream that was just so impactful and uh, like it changed my life or anything. I, I think it's just some random dream, and he was like, "Wow, that was that was kind of crazy how all that stuff happened. I should write a song about it, but it's just sort of silly." <laughs> I agree. I, I I did try to dive into it deeper, and to me, I, I I don't think that you're supposed to make head to tail sense of it. I, I think it gives you a glimmer of what's going on with all these characters, and um, and it doesn't really make complete sense. I, I think he probably wanted to leave it that way. If he tied it all in a bow and made it into a story, it wouldn't have that same dreamlike feel. I think I think it was supposed to still feel like a 15-year-old's dream when it was all said and done. That's that's my interpretation anyway. He has a, a way about dragging out words for, for a long time or, or um, changing off the same word from a basic line to like a transition to something else totally different musically. Like in this song with the one more day he hangs out on that word day for a long Mm. time and you know manipulates the words to fit the songs kind of uniquely i wouldn't say it's like many others we we talked about evan stevens hall of of pine grove and how he'll twist words and pronounce them differently to make his lyrics fit together for the song to work in a clever way i i feel like wozniak does a little bit of that too in a lot of his songs it's the first time i've i've brought it up but there's a few few other songs where it seems like you know he says the word and it could just be the end of the the stanza and it could just go into music and and no lyrics but then 
he'll hang out for a while on that, you know, and like almost change his voice with the music. Yeah, I agree. Well, should we go on to the next one? Yeah. Track eight is titled Sunday Mail. I'm just out here in the street. So this song was written for a piece to be performed on VH1's Midnight Minute uh, series, which was a show where artists would perform a a 60-second bit. So Wozniak came up with this song the night before the filming of the show and uh, later elongated on it uh, for this album and made it a full song. But just another example, like I was talking about before, how he can come up with music on the fly. He wrote this the night before. He wrote that other song when he was 15 waking up from a dream and then the next song that we'll talk about just came to him when he was when he was out in the field with his guitar and wrote that real quickly too so seems to be a a good storyteller can put put things on paper pretty quickly but this song sunday mail he says he he elongated on it but uh it's not a very long song the lyrics uh repeat you know he says he's i'm just out here on the street practically i'm just waiting for the sunday mail Ooh, it doesn't come Will you send me something soon? Will you swing me near the moon with those words? I know you will. I know you will. I tried to figure this out. I didn't didn't look it up, do much research, but uh, I didn't quite understand what he was talking about, if this was uh, a metaphor for something or there was a literal interpretation behind the song. Did you get anything? Yeah, I don't think we're supposed to dig at anything too deep. I, I think it's just, uh, like you said, he wrote it the night before. So I think he, I don't think it was anything super meaningful to him. And then just expanding on it to put it on the album. It just sounds like it's a story of somebody who is hoping somebody that they care about will, it sounds like maybe they romantically care about, will write them snail mail. This would be, this would be right in the email time. Um, but maybe this was written before that. Wait a minute. Does mail, does mail even come on Sunday? It's a good question. Maybe that's the irony of the song. He's just out, he's just out there in the street on Sunday waiting for the mailman, but he doesn't come Well, because they don't deliver mail on Sunday. <laughs> According to Google, the postal service does deliver certain Amazon packet. Well, there were Amazon didn't exist. <laughs> I know FedEx and, and UPS and Amazon deliver on the weekends, probably Sunday. But I don't think the United States Postal Service works on Sunday. I guess priority mail and certain things come on Sundays. Okay, well. Here you go. Personal mail is not usually delivered on Sundays or holidays. So if this is a personal letter that he's waiting for... <laughs> but she should have sent it priority. That's that's the moral of the story. On that's this the moral of the story. Then, then this, he would have gotten it. This guy is waiting for something that's not going to come because the mail doesn't come. But it sounds like he's waiting for those words that will take him to the moon. I don't know. I feel like a lot of these lyrics don't really have a meaning behind them. They're just kind of silly stories. Yeah, I would agree. I don't I don't think you're, we're supposed to read too deep into this. But that's, that's part of why I really like it. It's just, it's just a fun, fun album musically and... And lyrically, uh, it, it kind of keeps you guessing. Like if you if you just knew Marcy Playground from their hit single "Sex and Candy" off the first album, you would be really caught off guard listening to Shapeshifter. 
start to finish and like that's the follow-up to that album that had had that song that was so popular if, if if you like tried to label the band as you know being that song or attached to that song you you would think who are these guys what are, what are they talking about this is just sort of random funny collaboration collection of songs that don't really piece together you know we've done a lot of concept albums so far not like intentionally but it's just sort of happened that way i don't yeah I don't know if there's much a con- much of a concept to this one except just surrounding his his upbringing with his bohemian mother who was into uh, the herbal medicines and and shaman and and uh, spirituality and just sort of some of the strange encounters he had as as a child. Yeah, the only thing I would say that as a theme that runs throughout this is a lot of childlike components, whether mm-hmm. it would be cartoons or interactions with his mother or something he dreamed about when he was 15 you know there, there's a lot of him as a kid and i don't yeah. know how this that might apply to this song but that's that's the theme that comes to mind yeah that could be one explanation for a lot of the the, the fun childlike sounds too that yeah. get thrown in there yeah the yodeling and the the silly voices and yep right yeah, yeah. should we move on to track nine yeah let's do it let's take a visit to the pigeon farm track nine <laughs> So keeping with that theme of childhood references, this is a song written when he was on his bass player's mother's farm. Yeah, this is the one I was making reference to earlier. Right. He said he was he was out in the field with his guitar and he had a moment hanging out, spending some time with family and friends after what he called a marathon run of almost 200 shows. Being from the Midwest, knowing, knowing what that typical farmstead looks like and, and um, the, the atmosphere and the culture surrounding that. I just picture they've been on the road, they've been to all these cities on the bus, I'm sure some partying in there and just really hectic. They go out to the farm and uh, they just go to hang out and recover and you know he says there's a place, there's a fortune, it has everything to help help you fit in with everyone so please don't be afraid because there's nobody insane here on the pigeon farm. <laughs> You know, just basically saying, you know, out here, like we're not, we're not, we're not rock stars. We're not, uh, you know, wild and crazy. We're just, we're just another one of the, the pigeons out here on the farm. We're, you know, we're, we're one of the boys, one of the kids, just hanging out with a bunch of good people. Nobody's, nobody's wild and crazy. Maybe you can help a city boy out there, Mister Midwest. <laughs> Is a pigeon farm an actual thing? Like, as somebody who walks around with way too many pigeons in the city the idea of somebody farming them seems a little bit crazy to me is am i missing something i don't know anybody who has a pigeon farm i got a friend with a llama farm no i i don't know i mean i'm sure some people might have some pigeons but it's it's not it's not a common uh thing around here at least not in iowa maybe minnesota he said he was at dylan's mother's farm dylan I mentioned, yeah, the bass player. Bass yeah. guitarist, right? Right. Yeah, and D- Dylan's been in the band uh, since the since the beginning of the band in 96. I didn't talk about how, how they met. I think, I think somebody introduced Dylan to John before they formed the band, but I imagine they're pretty good friends. They go back 
That might be another reason why that just felt like an escape from that, as you said, marathon of touring. If he had known him since he was a kid, he probably got to know Dylan's mom pretty well, too. And you know how if you go to a, a friend's house, even as an adult, you go to their yeah. folks' house, you just kind of go back to being a kid because they remember you as a kid. You sort of feel like a kid. And maybe it just felt like he could escape into that part of himself during the in the midst of all the touring. Yeah, definitely. I'm just reading here on... on uh... Google, why do people raise pigeons? <laughs> See, seeing if if uh, there is something to a pigeon farm. I mean, apparently there are there are people who who do this. It says there's many reasons that folks in urban areas raise these birds. It's fun to have pets you can watch fly. All oh, right, that's what you were referencing. People put them out on their on their deck. Or I've seen a lot of movies where there's there's pigeons out in these city areas. I just meant they were walking around the street. They're like oh, they're like rats. Oh yeah, I guess yeah, I they are. From. They are all over. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But you you've, you've seen in movies like where somebody's out on their deck and there's there's always a pigeon like coming down and I don't know, I've never seen them on farms though. Yeah. I'm not sure. Can you eat pigeon eggs? I mean, I've, I've watched what pigeons eat off the before. ground. I wouldn't want to oh, yeah. I want to put one in my mouth. <laughs> but I I think the 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 gist of the song is you know just that it's kind of an escape uh from the from the grind of the music and the tour yeah i think you're right yeah i mean just just somewhere for them to get away all right we got a few tracks left let's move on to track number 10 this one's titled never i'd say never Never, Wozniak is quoted as saying, This is a piece reflecting the overwhelming suffocation that enveloped me when I discovered my lover was sleeping with my best friend. Yeah, this is definitely a dark subject, not a not a very happy, pleasant song, but I, I kind of like the, the sound, the tune. Um, you know, you can kind of hear a little bit of anger and resentment, a little hurt uh, in his voice, but um, it has that same slow drawn out uh laid back i don't care sort of vibe to it that we've talked about in a few of the other songs in the past a little grungy really reminds me of of nirvana i i, I hear a lot of kurt cobain here there's some similarities on this song and, and in the musical style no question about it i know you mentioned that they were an influence and obviously you can list off band after band that was influenced by nirvana over the years but certainly i hear it on on this one especially and and in just in general in his voice yeah I was trying to piece together all the lyrics and figure out what what was going on with with the the woods and you walk to the tree and you and you breathe on the limbs how many times have you seen me with her i think basically saying to his his friend who is sleeping with his lover i mean how many times have you seen us together you know we're together it's not like you could pretend that you didn't know that and uh here you are behind my back in the next verse, he says, when the night comes and you find that you're bound, tied to the tree and the straps at your knees, how many times have you seen me with her? I don't know if he's implying that he's going to tie this guy uh, to the tree and make him think about what he's done or maybe harm him. But then later it says, when the sun comes up and you find that you're free, walk to the water and bleed in the stream and think of the lover that wants you wrapped around. I don't know it's kind of, it's kind of dark like he's 
is going to get revenge on this guy and tie him to a tree or something. Yeah, that's what I think. And I, and I think the last verse saying, breathe in the water, breathe it in deep, just like the winter falling to sleep. So it sounds like somebody that's drowning, you know, breathe in water, fall asleep. And then the last lines, don't, don't ever wander, don't ever move again. Yeah, I agree. I think it sounds like somebody that is being vengeful. He's a little pissed off, just a little bit. Well, I think he has every right to be. <laughs> I mean, maybe not to the point of doing what he's talking about doing, but you can imagine these thoughts might go through someone's head if you found this stuff out. That's one of the nice things about having music as an outlet. You don't actually have to do anything like that, but it probably feels yeah, a little right. bit better yeah. to sing about it when you're that yeah. upset. It's an outlet. Well, in probably the most alarming transition, we go from the song about yeah, right. a jealous lover to love bug. Love bug. <laughs> this is track 11. That is ironic. reference to this song Wozniak said animate love in my head and you get a big shiny magic bug and that's what he's talking about here there's not too many lyrics to this song but uh, it says it is growing it's all knowing it is glowing bright uh, bright red and he's referring to this bug love bug it says and so I'm in love yeah I love bug his kind will forever shine. So open up your heart and let it in or or check inside. This one didn't stand out too much to me, but you were mentioning that there's another song where he does some of that interesting work with his voice and how he bends some words, right? Yeah, on the, on the, the phrase or words bright red. Right, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, he, he drags that out for a really long time and then marinates on it for a while. It's kind of nice to follow this up from the song Never because it shows that he, he's not trying to say that he's sealing himself off from any of that. He says, open up your heart, let it in. Right. Love will forever shine. So it's certainly a positive bent on, bend on love as well. Yeah, it's nice to come back from track 10, Never. Yeah, it doesn't leave you drowning in the water. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we are down to one final track, maybe. This one is titled Our Generation. Are you a child of the free to be you and me generation? And are you in tune with the world around you? I am a child of the free to be you and me generation and I'm with you and being all right so on the let's just say official last song on this album on our generation he's quoted saying this song first appeared on my solo album Zog Bog Bean did you happen to check into that no I read about it but I didn't go look it up I guess released way back in 1991, so much before their their debut with Marcy Playground. 
He said, I felt like it needed to be resurrected. It embodies a philosophy that I was raised with, a liberalism from the 70s. I really like like this song. It's almost a, a, a ballad in, in a sense or a mantra that, that could be repeated or, or a theme song for, for a group of youthful kids with, with their whole life in front of them wanting to go out and change the world, make it a better place. You know, just like that whole idea of opportunity and possibility of just like the unknown and and trying to shape things for your best interest but also you know to make a positive impact on the world so i guess he's a child of the 70s and we were talking about that cartoon being um from the 60s so this would he's that would have been a little bit before his time that Mm -hmm. um yeah secret squirrel one but yeah no i agree this is a nice little song to end the album yeah are you are you a child of the free to be you and me generation me personally, I don't know. I'm I'm from the '80s, so I, I think I probably can't claim that. To be honest, the '80s were very very different. In the 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 voice of the generation of the '80s is it was a lot different than the '70s. I think I think we need to have another movement of of people wanting to be free from from all the the pressures of society, wanting them to to pick a side or take a stance or join forces with somebody else. I feel like there's a lot of tribalism going on with current culture and maybe a lot of people that aren't as free as they should be in their mind to be themselves and you know take a stand be different yeah yeah i think right now you have to fit into a camp i like how in the first verse uh, he says are you a child of the free to be you and me generation and are you in tune with the world around you i am a child of the free to be you and me generation and i am with you and being in tune and then he changes that in the second or third verse and are you confused with the world around you and i am with you in being confused so basically we're in this together whether your thoughts are clear and you're being in tune or you're a little bit confused you're you're free to be you and feel how you want to feel and and I'm there with you and we'll be a part of this movement uh, there's other lines I believe you are the children of the one great spirit I believe I feel the power of light uh, I'm the flower of life the earth um, you know listen to the whistle of the planet twirling through space we shall bring change to this place I realize I'm reading these lyrics backwards but it, it all kind of centers around the the general theme of coming together, embracing a, a positive spirit or vibe, not being afraid to be you, be different, be free. Yeah, and one of the things that we're always talking about when we do these deep album dives is in listening to albums from start to finish, we're thinking about why you might put something at the beginning versus the end, and this does sound like a nice message just to end the album with. Yeah, even though even though it can be serious, there's still... Uh, a silly lightheartedness about it almost uh, almost um reminiscent of the song where he's where he's singing about all his friends getting wrapped up in in heroin and sort of playing it off like we'll find whatever you know and joking about um putting their head in a in a dark hole where the where the gas comes from behind the oven you know not like meaning that seriously but sort of playing it off so he doesn't have to face the seriousness of it in this song it's serious in a positive um, sense they're talking about coming together and trying to change the world and, and and we're free we have this power look at the change we can bring to this place but then he says singing la 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 to the human race you know so 
It's like they want to try to bring change to this place and be positive and inspiration to the world, but then la 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 to the human race, like whatever, forget you guys, we're going to go start our own world or something. So it kind of blows that all off too. It's like, yeah, that was really good. And then all of a sudden they just say, well, like, oh, and we're just kidding. That, it's not that serious. Back to everything maybe a theme of this being a lot of childhood elements that sounds like a schoolyard taunt like a kid would would say as they're running you know you can't catch me la 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 yeah. you know there's there is some some kind of theme uh that perpetuates this album all right so that that wraps it up huh we uh we have one more little song here a one a two a one two three just call it track 12 and a half you know that's one of the things that we were talking we were reminiscing about music in the late 90s and mid 90s that was the cd made that pretty fun that secret song thing was common yeah hidden track the, the hidden track thing and that doesn't exist anymore because everything there's no reason to put a hidden track on the end of a track if you're shuffling because you're not going to listen to five minutes of silence before the next song that was a fun part of our childhood is you never knew if you were going to get a secret track once when you bought an album this one's pretty funny he, he's re-singing the pigeon farm song but he's singing it in sort of an operatic voice that was really funny it kind of came out of nowhere and I'm pretty sure that he's trying to emulate a Tiny Tim style. I think I texted you, do you know who Tiny Tim is? And I don't think you did. I looked it up, though. I think you're right. And Tiny Tim started in the 60s. He was active until the mid-90s. But I think most people know his version of Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Mm-hmm. And he was... It was What a weird musician he was. He was kind of like a novelty act he got played on some talk shows and stuff of the time just because he was it was sort of impressive what he could do i mean it sounded like a woman singing opera he was up in those high registers of soprano with his falsetto but he he had like no stage presence he wasn't a particularly attractive guy he was kind of a weird looking dude and it, it almost was like some weird carnival thing you were half impressed by what he could do with his voice and half a little yeah. creeped out and sideshowy with just his presentation with the whole thing and so he was he was popular as almost just like a train wreck you couldn't look away from <laughs> yeah that was a fun little way to end the end the album well now that we've gone through the whole thing we touched on it a little bit at the beginning but tell me why you picked this one shane well marcy playground is a, a band from my teen years that that I really listened to a lot and uh, I've come back to a few times uh, through through my adulthood and I listen to it enough that I can still sing along to a lot of them. Shapeshifter stands out to me 
for for a couple tracks that I really connected with America and and uh, the last one our generation that we just talked about. So I think that's why I chose that over over the others. I could have chose the self-titled debut album or their third album MP3 because they both have some really good tracks as well. And just looking back over them in prepping for this podcast, if I were to create a greatest hits or my favorite tracks uh, Marcy Playground album There'd definitely be a few from each. Those were the three that I listened to the most. Uh, I don't know Leaving Wonderland in a Fit of Rage as well. I chose Shapeshifter because that's the one that I remember the most. And I also think part of the reason why I wanted to pick this album is because everybody knows their self-titled debut album. And I thought it would be a good way for us to explore some of their other music and... Um, for you to look into to this one if you hadn't uh, listened to them much over the years and then go back and listen to the album that was a little bit more popular because sometimes I think if if you focus on a band's most popular a couple popular albums maybe you don't ever give enough time to to the others that that didn't get as much attention uh, that deserve it as well and so that was another reason why I chose uh, Shapeshifter I think it's one that could maybe uh, get lost in the shuffle but um, I think it's equally as good if not better and and deserve some attention on the podcast so that's that's why i picked it overall it's a really fun album I, I wouldn't say that it connects to me real deeply from a lyrical standpoint like some of the albums that we've listened to in the past it's not something that i put on if i'm in a certain state of mind or need to reflect or dive into something or get lost for for me it's more about the fun uh, experience of listening to it it's something you can put on if you're riding the train or the subway or on a road trip a lot of the songs are just fun loving superficial lyrically and uh kind of playful i don't know if they're intended to have a, a deep impact on people but that's part of what makes it a unique enjoyable album as well that's, that's kind of its place yeah i'm glad you picked this one like i said i was more familiar with the first one like most people were but even that one i didn't get into until i was in my mid-20s it was fun going back and looking at what was going on in 96 for the first one and 99 for this one and what I was buying instead because it kind of reminded me of like what I was into at the time and why maybe this one fell off my radar. And yeah, I agree with you. There's not a lot of deep dive when it comes to the lyrics. There was f some fun little Easter eggs and I liked some of the references to the cartoons and some of the pop culture from that era and, and before when he was a kid. But as we talked about in some of our other episodes, that's music as well. I think there's nothing wrong with just putting something on and enjoying it. And having memories and ties from when you were growing up is part of what I think is important for the two of us to talk about. I enjoy just knowing what you were into at the time and hearing some personal stories of maybe why something connected with you as a kid or why something might connect with you more as an adult. I'm glad that we treated it that way, too. It, it has a place for sure in the rotation, and it was a fun deep dive. That's not to say that John Wozniak is not a great lyricist. I'm I'm really impressed by his ability to throw characters and stories into song and pull references from different realms of life and then intermix them with some lighthearted, fun stories, some personal stories as well. So that there is a lot of depth uh, to the lyrics, and you can you can tell that there's a lot of thought uh, put into it. With this album, I don't I don't think that's really the intent. There's a lot of stories being told, but a lot of a lot of the songs are 
fictitious in nature and not meant to to shed light on anything real serious i mean that's not to take away from the song about his friends getting wrapped up in in heroin and other drugs or uh, a best friend having an affair with with your lover you know there there are definitely some some serious notes that that were hit in some of these songs but there's always kind of a lighthearted, playful spin on it. Yeah. So, and maybe that's back to the, the overarching theme of a lot of these stories uh, being connected to his childhood or from a kid's perspective, where it wouldn't need to be interpreted from a real serious adult, um, mature standpoint. But I've, I've, I've uh, listened to uh, Wozniak in some interviews. He's, he's definitely a deep, uh, emotional, spiritual guy. And some of his other music that he's put out there has a lot of depth. Good variety of, of music out there, from fun, lighthearted songs to some pretty deep, uh, serious songs as well. It's cool to see a band that is labeled as a one-hit wonder that really is still in existence. I mean, a lot of the bands that we listened to growing up would not be labeled as one hit wonders and put a lot, out a lot of albums and hits, but they also disappeared in a matter of one, two, five, ten years. For being a band labeled as a one hit wonder to be still in existence in 2020 in any form is quite an accomplishment, I would say. Any final thoughts on Shapeshifter or Marcy Playground? I think we've covered it pretty well. And so we'll move on next to a 2020 pick. Cool. All right. Well, until next time, go listen to a great album. Dive in. If you're enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time. <laughs>